With Capella University's FlexPath learning format, you can earn your degree online at your own pace and get support from people who care about your success. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Addiction plays hardball. He would hit me with these verbal attacks. I just said to him, I love you so much. You're such an amazing person. I can't take this ride anymore. It was the fact that dad made that sentiment and broke down. And years later, he told me it had a huge impact on him. Sometimes doing what's right for your loved one is the hardest thing to do. Karen is that right thing. Visit caron.org slash lost. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show. Today on the James Altucher Show. I talk about in the book is nostalgia is the worst. The good old days were not good. The good old days sucked. It's one of my big themes because yeah. I think it's a thief of joy, this this idea that we should be all in the past and everything was great. And it's dangerous too. It's dangerous because when you um, glorify the past, you don't realize how much progress we've made. And then you become a nihilist and like, ah, everything sucks. Let's just throw it all away and elect someone who has never been in office because he can't do worse. Well, uh, in my opinion, <laughs> he's done a lot worse. But do you think, do you think gratitude kind of helps against these thieves of joy? Oh, yeah. I mean, I think I quote in the book this uh, this Benedictine monk who says, happiness does not lead to gratitude. Gratitude leads to happiness. And there's a lot of studies to back this up. I've written a lot about gratitude in articles. And there's a lot of science that stress is inflammatory in the system and inflammation in the body is harmful in a number of ways from cancer to diabetes to Alzheimer's. And gratitude directly fights that. Like if you're feeling stressed about the airport, that's gonna be slightly inflammatory, even microscopically inflammatory somewhere in your body. But if you replace it with gratitude, it's just, I don't need the science to know that that's gonna be a natural, yeah. naturally healthy thing. And yeah, there's huge amount of evidence that it's good for you. You know, I never believe just one study, but there are so many studies that... Like, what uh, else does it help you with? Uh, well, I read one study that it makes you a better athlete. I don't believe that, but because I I spent a year thanking people, and, you know, I cannot run a 30-second, a 100-yard dash. AJ Jacobs, thank you for being on the podcast. And, Thank you. Are you kidding? And we're we're celebrating the release of your book yesterday. Uh, Thanks a thousand, a gratitude journey. And I just want to describe this book for a second. We talked about it a little on the last podcast, but not really in depth. But what you basically did here was a lot of people are grateful for like, oh, I'm grateful for this cup of coffee. I'm grateful my kids are alive. I'm grateful I woke up today. I'm grateful the sun is shining. And the the, the great the gratitude. I've read. Since reading your book, I've done some research on the science of it too. When you're just grateful like that, the intensity of each moment of gratitude is not very big. So, and there's studies that show intensity of gratitude has just as many beneficial aspects. You know, it makes the beneficial aspects of gratitude even bigger. 
and we can talk about that in a second. What those what what's beneficial? But what you did was you went super intense, like hyper intense. You extreme took, gratitude, extreme right. gratitude, like they used to say in Mountain Dew commercials. So you took a cup of coffee, and you didn't just say thank you for this cup of coffee. You said thank you to the guy who made the lid. Thank you to the barista. Thank you to the the farmers who made the beans. Thank you to the about the truck drivers. You wrote. Uh, a thank you to the CEO of Exxon for the oil. <laughs> I had mixed feelings about that, but yeah. Right, well, we could talk about that because that was interesting. I actually, um, and then there was a lot, uh, so many what, different directions we could go here, but essentially you thanked a thousand people who were involved in the contribution of making you a single cup of coffee. Right. And that was sort of the point of the book is that it takes thousands, hundreds of people for everything in our, our lives. So it didn't have to be coffee. It could be a light bulb. It could be a pair of socks. But we, we take all these people for granted. And acknowledging them isn't just you know nice for them. It's really good for you. Like there's almost a, a selfish motive to gratitude. Like a sure. good, uh, when you do it right, you, it should make you happier. And by the way, before we continue, can I just say, since it's appropriate, I want to say thank you to you because you, I I did not know the power of podcasts until I was on your show like really early on. And it was hilarious because I would, I used to work at Esquire and I would spend like two months on an article, be all proud of it, come out, I'd get like two emails. Uh, and then I would come and spend 45 minutes on your podcast and I'd get like you know, a hundred emails. And I'm like, well, wow, this is, I mean, not just podcasts, your audience. But uh, I, I think now I don't work at s anymore. So there's a little lesson. Oh, I, I didn't know you didn't work at s No, that's not true. I still write. You're like editor at large or something, right? Yeah, yeah. I'm but, contributing editor. But I still, you know, I don't do as much for them, shall I? Um, I think it was Scott Adams, the creator of Dilbert, uh, who said that being on this, po because I have so many book readers who listen to this podcast, being on this podcast moves the needle for book sales more than being on the Today Show. Really? Yeah. I love that. All right, let's prove that right. Yeah, let's prove it. Because we're going to release this like immediately during the during the week. But I, the reason this book, you're, there's so many different directions to go. Uh, let's. There's three main directions here. One is the benefits of gratitude and, and your adventure in that. Um, the other is structurally how you wrote this, because I think that you have a very unique style, which we've talked about before, but you continued it into this book. And it's always impressive to see that this structure works again and again and again. It's just a, a massive magic formula you do to, to create books that I love. And the third way, that we, direction we could go, which we'll go, is there's a kind of capitalism aspect to this, because you mentioned the book I Pencil, which was written in the 50s, this book is a little similar, but I Pencil was essentially this essay written about all the th components worldwide that have to come together and trade with other countries and so on to create one pencil. Yeah, it's a great essay. And guess who sent me my first copy of that? Who? James Altucher. Oh, is that right? Yeah. You're like, I think oh, I have early I onset Alzheimer's. I really think. <laughs> but you mentioned in the book that coffee could reduce the risk of Alzheimer's. That's that, right. You got to drink more. Well, that's research? one study. I can't swear to it. But uh, but yeah, no, I love that essay. And and thank you. Thank you. I think your name was originally attached to that, but maybe it got edited out. I don't know. Yeah, you know, I was looking through the thank yous at the is end. Is it not in there? That's an think. outrage. I don't I think am. I'm thanked in the book, but that's oh okay. Oh, my God. I know. All right, in next, general. next round. But uh, you know, you said something interesting just now, which is that 
gratitude could be selfish, but I think actually the original purpose of being grateful is to be selfish. It's just like we were talking to someone the other day and she mentioned how forgiveness is more for you than mm. for the other person that you're yeah. forgiving. And I think gratitude is the same way. And there's all sorts of science that shows, I mean, I was looking right before I came over here, um, being grateful, uh, and then they had a, gr a control group that wasn't grateful. I don't know how they measure this exactly, but a week later, there was less physical complaints. There was They did more exercise in a week. They felt better about the future. They felt better about the upcoming week. Yeah, like in crazy. every f factor, they felt the they people eat who are better, grateful. they sleep better, grateful people. Yeah, I mean, there is a lot. I remember, of I remember the, the test was they one group did a gratitude journal, the other group did nothing. Right. Yeah, that is a classic, and and yeah, there's huge amount of evidence that it's good for you. And um, you know, I never believe just one study, but there are so many studies that. Like, what uh, else does it help you with? Uh, well, I read one study that it makes you a better athlete. I don't believe that, but because I I spent a year thanking people, and you know I cannot run a, like a a thirty second uh, hundred yard dash. Well, so. well, but you make that's a good point, which borders into the writing. But we'll we'll get there. But you did this. You it's not like you were just making the point that oh we should be mentally grateful for all the thousand people who contribute to a cup of coffee you you flew to Colombia to thank the farmers oh yeah you, well you I, thank the truck drivers you thank the baristas you you do everything I so, walk the walk I mean well partly it was because what we were discussing like I needed it you know I feel and maybe you feel this way too like in my mind there's the um there's the Larry David side and the Mr. Rogers side and the, they're battling for the, the, the pessimist, the cynic, versus like the, the optimist, the grateful. And, and I think I was born with my Larry David side was super strong, like he was a mammoth. And so you, you hide that very well because when we get together, it's always just cheerful, you seem relaxed, like. Well, that's, yes, I hide, I do. I fake it till I feel it. That is a very important part of my, my strategy. Like, so how, how do you think you've changed this year of this year of saying thank you to a thousand people? Well, I do think my Mr. Rogers side has become much more ripped. Um, and yeah, I think it's a discipline. Like, as I don't think it comes naturally to me, but if you force yourself to notice the hundreds of good things that happen every day instead of the three or four that go wrong, like it will make you happier. And it it will also one one point I want to make in the book is that it's gratitude's not the same as complacency. It's not like oh, I'm so grateful that I'm just gonna sit here on the couch. Uh, it motivates you. It motivates you to do a thing, and and motivates you to be pro-social and help others. Uh, like when and there's I, scientific evidence of this. Yeah, yeah. There's some good because when I'm in a dark space, I am not focused on others. I am just like, how can I get myself out of this? So, um, and ironically, one of the best ways to get yourself out of a dark space is to help others. So, well, did you have a chance to practice that? Like, let's say during this process. You found yourself in a dark space for whatever reason. Did you put put this to work and and start being grateful, and then suddenly found yourself out of that dark place? Oh yeah, every morning. <laughs> I mean, if I I would wake up with my default grumpiness, but I would force myself to spend an hour writing letters or calling people or visiting them to say, you know, thanks for your role in my coffee. And sometimes it didn't go well. Like people, some people were freaked out. They were like, uh, you know, is this a pyramid scheme? What are you yeah. selling? 
But the majority, it was delightful to see, were, you know, I remember I called the woman who does um, pest control for the warehouse where my coffee is stored. And I said, I know this sounds strange, but I do, I want to thank you for helping keep the insects out of my coffee. And she's paused and is like, well, that is strange, but thank you. You know, I don't get much recognition for what I do. And so it, it gave me a little dopamine boost and it seemed to give her a little dopamine boost. Does, does gratitude, is that, uh, does gratitude actually spike dopamine? I, that's a good question. I'm sure it's one of those good ones, serotonin, dopamine, uh, one of them. Okay. But, uh, yeah. But it made you happier. It made me happier and, and got me out of that, the dark space and the crankiness. You know, I've written about what I call, uh, it, it's, I always think it's not enough to just be grateful. I feel like that's easy. Like what we were talking about earlier. Oh, I'm grateful the sun's out today. I'm grateful I'm alive another day. Like that seems kind of boring and cliche and doesn't really help that much. Uh, I could be wrong. I've not done a study, but it seems like, you know, it's like just like saying hello to somebody, you know, or have a good day. You don't really mean have a good day. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, like, exactly. It's just a thing people say. So if I say, oh, I'm grateful the sun's out, it just feels like something that's easy. So I, I wrote once about something called difficult gratitude problems. And you talk about, you don't label it that, but you talk about that in this book. Like when you're when you were thinking about how to say how to say thank you to the trucks that deliver the coffee or the coffee beans or whatever it was, uh, you talked about how much you hated trucks on the freeway. Um, <laughs> they're annoying. They like right. So you're scary. So your general thinking is this is something I've hated all my life and I'm supposed to hate because it's annoying. But then you solve the difficult gratitude problem, which is you realize, oh, but I enjoy the benefit. The fact that these trucks are coming in means that I'm going to have my cup of coffee in the morning, so I'm grateful. Exactly. Like pretty much everything in my life was on a truck at one point, you know, my pants and my shirt and this microphone. So it's pretty, um, yeah, it's pretty immature of me to be all like, ah, oh, trucks. So, so, and that does, that helps cure a little bit of, uh, it makes you it makes you happier. It makes you more open to uh, to the you know to the annoying things in life that are not necessarily annoying because you need them. Yeah, and uh, you know I always use as a classic example when I'm describing this something similar, which is traffic in general. So mm. I think like let's say I'm stuck in traffic, so I'm late for a meeting. I could be anxious and panicked. But I try, but the difficult gratitude problem to get, you know, solving that gets you to the fact that, you know, the reason I'm going to a meeting here is because I live in such a wonderful city where there's all these opportunities. Hence, there's a lot of traffic. Mm, I like that. So, yeah, it's all about framing. I definitely agree with that. Right. So, uh, so, so it kind of leads to that idea that nothing is inherently good or bad. It's kind of how, whether we, our perception of it, whether we appreciate it or not. Right. And actually, I've been reading up on the Stoics because uh, I'm doing a Q&A for a Stoic, the Daily Stoic. And I do love their idea that you, know, you can't control the outside, but you can control your reaction to it. And, um, and I actually did this. This was not for this book. It was for another book. But I remember when I would go to an airport and I would get uh, patted down, like it drove me crazy. I'm like, oh my God, the, the nerve of them, they're invading my privacy. And I'm like, you know what? I, I'm not going to be able to change this. So at least let me change my attitude. And I'm like, 
I'm going to picture this as a free massage. Like this guy is just giving people pay like $100 to get massaged for an hour. This is the same thing, a stranger just touching me. I'm just going to chill out and let it happen. There's a there's a almost like a mathematical formula that goes along with this, which is happiness equals uh reality over expectations. Mm. So if your expect if your expectations are super high, like I should be able to to just run through an airport and jump on the plane without anybody stopping me, you're going to be disappointed because the reality is reality you can't change. Someone's going to stop you. You're going to be patted down. Your suitcases are going to be open. Like that's the reality. And if your expectations are too high, then reality over expectations is very low. Yeah. So happiness is very low. But you could you can change the reality, but you could change your expectations in a second. You 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 can lower the expectations in in this particular instance and say, look. I'm going to, sooner or later, I'm going to get on this plane. It doesn't matter to me <laughs> what happens along the way. And then suddenly your your opportunity for happiness becomes much greater. Exactly. And along the same lines, it's all about noticing the good things, like in an airport or at the, um, when I go to the drugstore and I am on a line that moves quickly, I now make a, make say it out loud to myself. I'm like, remember this. AJ, you are on a line that is going quickly because I know if I don't do that, next time I'm on the line that goes slowly, I'll be like, oh my God, I'm always on the slow line. I have the worst luck in the world. But it's not true. It's just because that slow line is so annoying. It's the one that sticks in your brain. We have a negativity bias. I think we've talked about that. Like, you know, we, if you hear 100 compliments and one insult, you're going to remember the insult. And that might have been helpful when we were cave people, we had to remember the lion or the, you know, one poisonous mushroom. But now it's not a good way to go through life. So trying to get rid of that negative bias is so crucial. Um, you mentioned, you mentioned that you, you just mentioned now that you say it out loud. And I know on another podcast, you, you, you told me that you do self-talk uh, out loud. Oh yeah, I talked to you myself. Do you actually say the gratitude thing out loud on, in, the, in that line case? I absolutely do. And well, What's I, the benefit again? I forget. Uh, well, there are a few. One, like you can hear yourself talking. Um, I mean, there's some interesting research on when you're angry, if you start talking to yourself and say, oh my God, I'm so angry and this is why, it engages the prefrontal cortex, the front of your brain, which is able to instead of the lizard brain, instead of your emotions. And that is very helpful. So I love that. I talk all the time. I talked all my way up here. I walked up here and I was- You were just talking out loud. I was talking out loud for saying? like 15 minutes. Um, well, part of it was like, well, I wonder what she, we should talk about on this uh, podcast. What if we, you know, uh, if he doesn't want to talk about gratitude, I, maybe we could talk about disgust. That's another thing that's on my mind, disgust, and whether it's a good or a bad emotion. And I just rambled on, and I have my earphones in, so people think uh, he's probably just talking to someone on the phone. Like, you know, 30 years ago, it might have looked weird, but now, you know, everyone's just talking as they walk down the street. And I love it. I mean, it clarifies my thinking. If I don't do that, also, it also helps me because it, I can hear when I start to just do crazy talk and my brain goes into a dark place that's not helpful and I say the same things over and over again, I'm like, okay, now you're just sounding crazy. So, so, so is it like, I'm trying to understand, like I, it makes sense, it engages the prefrontal cortex, but what's the benefit of that? Is, are you just 
activating more parts of your brain or is the prefrontal cortex gonna, it's not gonna short circuit your lizard brain, which is sort of more powerful. Like what's what's the benefit of engaging? Well, it does, I mean, it doesn't short circuit it, but it's, it helps to calm it down. It's like, you know, you've got the system one and system two or the, the, the monkey riding the elephant. So it's basically waking the monkey up and saying, all right, let's try to get a, a hold of this elephant that is your emotions. And uh, and and make sure that they don't run rampant. So when you're when you're writing the book, say, and you're getting a little frustrated or or something, what kind of self talk will you? So so like write, writing a book is your high stakes career thing. Like this right. is important to you. And there's probably many times during the writing of a book that you could get stressed. Oh, is this? Am I going to finish this? Is there enough material? Are people going to like this? Is it going to sell? Are they going to give me advance for my next book? What's going to happen? So what? When you run into one of these dark moments while writing a book, what self-talk do you say out loud? Well, first of all, I do like to talk while I write, like I'm saying the actual sentence. And I Which also, William Zinzer recommends, you know, in his book on, I think it's on writing well, it's his book about nonfiction writing. Interesting. Yeah. Do you do that? Uh, I'll do it after an article. Uh, so you'll read it to yourself? I'll read it to myself out loud. And also before stand-up, I'll practice right. saying things out loud. I do find, yeah, I definitely read my stuff out loud too. But, uh, you know, I'll try to remember the techniques I learned for this book, you know, just realize, uh, you know, you can't control people's reaction, but you had a, you learned a lot doing it, and um, it's going to make some people happy. You know that, all, you know, if it's 100 people, there are going to be some who like it. Uh, and they're not going to be some who don't. So focus on the ones who like it. Uh, you know, Tim Ferriss talks about this. Like, there are 300 million people in America. So even if hopefully most people don't hate you, but even if they do, there's still a lot left. Who like you. Yeah, exactly. That's good to know. A lot, at different points, a lot of people have hated me. <laughs> and, I, and they're the ones who speak out. Well, that is the a people problem. People who like you are like normal and sane, mm -hmm. and they're just binge watching Stranger Things every <laughs> night. The people who hate you are on like they're making YouTube comments and saying I fucking hate this guy, and uh, they're the ones who speak the loudest. Well, it's funny you bring that up because I actually, as part of this book, I was like, you know what? That that's so true. Like you go on Yelp and you just see the people are like, these guys are the worst, and it's it's not true. If you have a good experience at like a barber. Why not go on and just give them a positive review? I mean, it helps oh. them and makes you feel good. I, I was just in Paris with my daughter, and uh, I, I kind of, the very first day we were there, I kind of wanted to just get through all the cliche tourist things. So we went to the Eiffel Tower for like 12 minutes, and then I said, I said, okay, let's get a cab. We went to the Louvre, which is a huge building, but I said, let's just go straight to the Mona Lisa. I'll take a picture of you and then we leave. <laughs> and so she just wanted to check the box. I just wanted, I convinced her to check the box on all the tourist things. And then she was free the next couple of days to do whatever she wanted, if she wanted to go back or whatever. But going to the Eiffel Tower, you go on Google Maps, you see, I didn't even know this was on Google Maps. People review places on Google Maps. There's like 75,000 reviews of the Eiffel oh, Tower. And how does and it I do? Just, I, I well, there are one star reviews. Like who? And I didn't read any of them. I should have because it's funny. But <laughs> who goes to the Eiffel Tower and says, you know, I I really thought it should have been taller, <laughs> or I don't know what they say. I've got to read some of these. Well, you like, know what? That's actually that brings up something that I think is kind of important because I remember I took my family to France a few months ago, and one of my favorite facts was that when the Eiffel Tower was proposed, all 
of the intellectuals and artists in Paris were appalled. And they wrote this, um, this huge piece uh, in, and published it in the newspaper. And I remember one line was something along the lines of, uh, if this is built, then all the other monuments in Paris will die of shame. Like the Notre Dame will die of shame. And now it's the iconic Paris. So it's like, you know, people, people change their minds and, you know, they're reluctant. They're, they're very skeptical of new things, but they will go to, so well, whenever well, you get negative feedback, just remember the Eiffel Tower. That just reminds me though of, of New York City. You grew up in New York City and uh, in the seventies, New York City was disgusting and, you know, you were afraid to cross the street. I don't know about you, but I was afraid to like walk down the block and Times Square was the worst. And I find now it's it's crowded, but it's great. Like it's all Disney now. It's much better than when it was all, I mean, I used to walk down 42nd Street as a 15 year old or 16 year old <laughs> and people would offer me guns, knives, fake licenses, women. And I was scared all the time. Uh, now, but now I find I talk to people and they're like, oh, New York City used to be much better when it was like a rougher. I know it's it's great now. Like it's Wonderland right now. I <laughs> well, I am scared of some of those Elmos like they who scream, uh, you know, they take the, the ones who take their heads off. They used to not take their heads off, but now all those characters take their heads off. But overall, I agree with you. I mean, I talk about in the book is nostalgia is the worst. The good old days were not good. The good old days sucked they were you know disease ridden dangerous wait you've talked about that in a different book i it's one of my big themes because yeah. i think it's a thief of joy this this idea that we should be all in the past and everything was great it wasn't it sucked it was sexist homophobic it, people died all the time you know childbirth was like 50 50 whether you you would survive or your kid would survive so uh yeah, I find this idea of nostalgia, and it's dangerous too. It's dangerous because when you um, glorify the past, you don't realize how much progress we've made, and then you become a nihilist and you're like, ah, oh, everything sucks. Let's just throw it all away and elect someone who has never been in office because he can't do worse. Well, I, in my opinion, <laughs> he's done a lot worse. Well, what I like to do is, it's almost like two similar but slightly different emotions, which is feeling nostalgic or feeling melancholy. Mm. I actually enjoy feeling melancholic. I don't know if that's the word. I, I enjoy the emotion of melancholy where you can look back and think, you know, it was nice being a 15-year-old in rough New York City and surviving. Um, but, I, but I separate that out from nostalgia, which is trying to control. Like, mm. I wish things now were like they were back then. I feel that's more that's nostalgia. That's interesting. I like that. That's an interesting. Because I had to deal with this when I threw out all my belongings. People would say, oh, I must have been so freeing. You must be so happy. And I, I realized, no, sometimes I'm sad in this melancholy way, but I avoid feeling like, oh, I wish I didn't throw that one thing out. Right. Like I, I could miss something and feel that was nice to have. And I felt nice about it. But I don't, but if I try not to control with the nostalgia, right. it's better. But do you think do you think gratitude kind of helps against these thieves of joy? Oh yeah, I mean I think I quote in the book this uh, this Benedictine monk who says happiness does not lead to gratitude, gratitude leads to happiness. And there's a lot of studies to back this up. It's like 
it is, I think, one of the keys, if not the key, to fighting these negative emotions. And you know, you know, even um, there's a lot of. We're t- I know we're talking about a lot about studies, but but you've been a one man in the very in in Tim Ferriss fashion. You've been a one man experiment on this, and I've written a lot about gratitude and articles. And there's a lot of science that stress is inflammatory in the system, and inflammation in the body is harmful in a number of ways, from cancer to diabetes to Alzheimer's, as you mentioned here. And gratitude directly fights that. Like you. If you're feeling stressed about the airport, that's gonna be slightly inflammatory, even microscopically inflammatory somewhere in your body. But if you replace it with gratitude, it's just, I don't need the science to know that that's gonna be a natural, yeah. naturally healthy thing. And there really is all this science that, that we've discussed, but uh, uh, what would be, and we, we've talked about the difference of, like obviously this book is extreme gratitude. It's, it's, a, it's high intensity. I forget all the different ways they mention they measure gratitude. There's intensity, there's span, like how many, how many times, how many things you're gratitude grateful about. Uh, but you 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 were grateful about many things and with intensity because you went out and actually instead of just thinking I'm grateful, and instead of just saying it out loud, you actually said it to the person. Uh, I'm grateful for what you do to get me the coffee. Uh, what would be a good exercise? For someone listening to this, to basically quickly, and I think this is possible, quickly change their lives using some of the things you discovered about gratitude when you were writing this book. Not right. things you knew about gratitude beforehand, but things mm. you discovered about gratitude yeah, while writing this. That's interesting. Well, I would say, I mean, I don't, uh, I don't think people have time to do six months traveling around thanking everyone in their coffee. But you can do a smaller version of it, and just I call it the gratitude trail. So you just Thank you know it could be as short as uh, as writing a note on Facebook to um, like the designer of a logo you love. It could be looking people in the eyes. That was a big one because the barista uh, at my coffee shop when I interviewed her, she said that the worst part is when people treat her like a vending machine and they don't even they just hand her the credit card without looking up from their phone and just like that two seconds of eye contact. And I'm not expecting a Nobel Prize for it, but I do try to make eye contact with people because I think that's the way we're wired as humans is you want a little eye contact. And um, and by the way, this she wouldn't do this, but I did read like a, an inside uh, barista's secrets. And if you are too rude to them, some of them will give you... Spit decaf, Not oh. spit, decaf. Maybe spit, but yeah. decaf, which I think is worse. I'd rather have... The uh, spit, right? <laughs> yeah, spit might be kind of exciting. Who knows? Yeah, who knows? Uh, uh, but uh, so in those two cases, you know, writing a note to someone, I think that's a great exercise. Like, if it just takes five minutes to find someone you're grateful for, and you write them a note, right? And like uh, I've talked about this before in the podcast, but I often try to, I look through my emails that I didn't respond to seven years earlier, and sometimes writing a note to them is interesting. But I'm gonna add a gratitude component. I love see that. What so then, what are I mean? I love that. Have you, what's the responses have you gotten when out seven years later you send an email? Oh, it's amazing all the time. People are like, "Oh, I can't believe I heard from you again." Or <laughs> that's I, hilarious. Yeah, we, you know, I want to do that. And then a lot of times it's in really uncomfortable situations where they really were expecting a response seven years ago, <laughs> but all is forgiven after seven years. That's the thing. It's great. 
So, um, but maybe then, can you respond like, "Yeah, I'll meet you at the Chinese restaurant." That's what I do. Up. I'll say I say stuff like that, like, "Yeah, sure, I'll be up for that coffee." And sometimes people will say, "Well, I don't really have time now, but thanks for responding." Um, well, but, one other just uh, practical thing when thanking people, I uh, if you just say thanks, that can be very robotic, like reflexive. And there was actually a study by Wharton that showed if you say other phrases, like I'm really grateful, that has a bigger impact than just saying thank you. So mix it up, like actually put, and also put some thought into what they did. Like instead of saying, I would email these people, like, you know, this woman who uh, helped farmers. And I say, you know, I know it can't be pleasant out there fighting the mosquitoes and, and the hot sun. So I really appreciate you did this to, for me. Uh, well, what I love about all the things you just said, um, and, and I'll write them in the, the article that people will see about the book, all of them are things you that are interacting with others. So there's going to be a part two of this in one minute which is you telling me where you're not interacting with others and you've learned through this process. Because in this book, you're interacting with others all the time. You, you physically say thank you to a thousand people. But uh, there must have been things that you've learned to increase the intensity of your gratitude where you're kind of by yourself, like you say, to, to push anger or these darker moments out. But I'm going to get to that in a second because you inspired me in this book. A, by the way, I've been looking everyone in the eyes when I've been ordering coffee. Like <laughs> we're drinking coffee right now that I got you before this podcast. And I looked that woman in the eyes. I said, thank you. I should have said, I'm grateful for this, but I said, thank you. And she was smiling as a result, as opposed to like people just looking down and putting their card in the thing. And We are great human beings. <laughs> but you inspired me to call uh, the professor who threw me out of graduate school in 1991 no way. and say thank you to him for throwing me out of graduate school. Because you wouldn't be here if he had, if you had stayed in yeah, grad I would have school. Yeah, I would, maybe would have been a professor of computer science, which I didn't really want to be. And I, now I had a, went a totally different life. I'm really happy with This is fantastic. So, I cannot so, wait. Yes, it's totally true. Airbnb has changed my life. If anything, they have made my life so much better. Like I used to live in Airbnbs. I, I lived in over 100 or 200 different Airbnbs over a three-year period, and I loved it. I, loved, I became a really good guest of Airbnbs, and I got to know lots of hosts. So when I initially owned a house, I, of course, the first thing I thought was, I'm going to turn my house into an Airbnb because I travel a lot. So why leave my house unused when I can make a side income by letting others Airbnb my house or come to stay in my house as guests? And having my own Airbnb or, or being a host for Airbnb has allowed me to do just that. And I've met other hosts. I've actually spoken at Airbnb's host conference. I think it was in 2017. I met so many just nice hosts. It's a great community. And I love, you know, turning my own home into an Airbnb. Like I'm traveling to Austin next month. My home's going to be an Airbnb while I'm away. And I'll stay in an Airbnb. I'd rather stay in like a three story house Airbnb than in one tiny hotel room in, in the middle of Austin during South by Southwest. So listen, while you're away, your home could be an Airbnb. Many people host on Airbnb, but there are people 
who are just letting their house sit empty, who've never thought about it or didn't realize their space could be an Airbnb. Hosting can easily fit into your lifestyle and is a great way to earn some extra money. So if you have a home, but you're not always at home, then you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Daylight savings time is starting up again. Okay, podcast is over. That's all you needed to know. But why do we have uh, daylight savings time? Answer, to give us more daylight from March through November. By setting your clocks forward, it may feel like there are more hours in the day that initial, when we initially start daylight savings. But if you're hiring, it doesn't necessarily help you find qualified candidates for your roles any sooner. There's only one way to do that, ZipRecruiter. And right now you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter works around the clock to find qualified candidates for you. Once you post your job on ZipRecruiter, they send it to 100-plus job sites so you reach more of the right people. This is such a brilliant idea for a business, and ZipRecruiter did it. So ZipRecruiter's smart technology also quickly scans thousands of resumes to identify people whose skills and experience match your job. I've used ZipRecruiter particularly as a potential employee, and I still, to this day, get messages every day. James Aldacher, would you like to apply to be VP of entertainment at NBC or whatever. So there's just nonstop emails. Like I got five or six emails today because of because a year ago I signed up for ZipRecruiter. So spring forward with a new hiring partner, ZipRecruiter, and find top talent sooner. See why four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Once again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Hey, listen, men's health is important. Men act all cocky and like they don't need anything. But the reality is, as you get older, there's some things you need. And it often feels like we're too busy to take care of our health problems. Like I'd rather do anything then go to the doctor or the dentist or the pharmacy or whatever. But now you don't have to waste your time if you use HIMS. HIMS, H-I-M-S, HIMS is changing men's healthcare by providing simple and convenient access to science-backed treatments for erectile dysfunction, hair loss, weight loss, and more. The entire process is 100% online, so you get a new routine of improving your overall health faster. Jay, you listening to all this? Yes, I definitely gonna use him for now. Not on. that you need it. You're you're young and healthy, James. I'm 35. You, you're getting there. You might you might need it. Who knows? But if prescribed, your medication ships directly to you for free and indiscreet packaging. No insurance is needed. You can manage your plan on the Hims app, track progress, and learn more about your conditions and how to treat them from leading medical experts. Start your free online visit today at Hims dot com slash James. Could you imagine that there's a whole section just with my name on it? Hims.com slash James. That's how I how much I am representative of the kind of person who needs hymns. That's HIMS.com slash James for your personalized treatment options. Hims.com slash James. Prescriptions require an online consultation with a healthcare provider who will determine if appropriate. Restrictions apply. 
See hymns.com slash James for details and important safety information. Subscription required. Price varies based on product and subscription plan. We're gonna. I'm grateful I get to see this. And just in full disclosure, I I did call him a half hour ago and say I was going to call him, but he doesn't know why. He does little. A little guy. Hello, Uh, Merrick. It's James. Hey, James. How are you? Good, good. So (laughs) I I mentioned every. So first off, Merrick meet AJ Jacobs. AJ meet Merrick. Hello, Professor. (laughs) So Uh, thanks, AJ. How are you? Good. Thank you. AJ Merrick is the professor who in 1991 officially signed the letter throwing me in disgrace out of graduate school where I, I, I think I failed three out of, I think I failed 75% of my classes and finally they asked me to leave. And Merrick, I'm calling to say thank you for that because my life has turned out to be infinitely great. I don't know how my life would have turned out otherwise. I, I probably would have been a professor somewhere, which nothing wrong with that. But I lo- I'm here on stage now with AJ Jacobs calling you and saying thank you. And people are going to learn about Wait, this. You're thank- Wait, what, what are you thanking me for, James? Are you thanking me for you, you're failing the classes and my having to write the letter? I don't think that. <laughs> yeah, I'm thanking you. I'm thanking that you. Forced me out of grad. And he didn't directly force me, but I chose my. I I I failed. I earned my failure out of graduate school. Let's put it that way. But you're the person who wrote the letter that actually took me out of graduate school. And if I didn't have that letter from you, my life would have turned out differently. And I like the life I have. So I'm grateful to you. I'm deeply grateful to you for. And and we became friends after you wrote this letter. So another reason why I'm deeply grateful to you is that this letter became like a an odd point of contact for us that w- w- manifested into a, a almost thirty year friendship. Now, you know, it's interesting. the The letter itself, I think the faculty should thank me for writing it because I ended up being in this tough place where I didn't want you to have to leave graduate school, and the faculty and I. It's my job, on behalf of the faculty, to write that letter, and I actually fought quite hard not to write that letter so they should thank me for the letter but you know the fact that we were able to develop a relation keep our keep our friendship and and it was that letter was important to me you were the first person i ever had to say something so strongly no to that i was able to then maintain a relationship with all these years so so thank you too yeah it's 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 unusual to get uh, you know we should we should be enemies i should be like that guy, <laughs> that guy kicked me out of school. But uh, how about, oh. uh, well, how about how about in our next life we'll be enemies? But how about you? Like you forced me to have to write this stupid letter to you, which I didn't want to have to write. <laughs> <laughs> but you got to be friends with him after, so that's something. Yeah, and you get to be on the radio. Before we were friends before, but it was it was hard to be friends through that actually. But and I appreciate that. Yeah, it's funny how these kinds of things where you kind of, I can see how writing that letter must have forced you. I wasn't thinking that at the time, I think, but I was probably mostly worried about myself at the time, which was not fair. But I can see how getting a letter like that would kind of require you to have to grow in some way. And so, well, they, they, there's, there's some interesting research that says when you're fired from a job, for instance, you have the same 
kind of feelings or the same neurochemicals or whatever as when you experience the loss of a loved one. And being thrown out of graduate school, even though I literally asked for it by failing all these classes, you know, it felt like a death a little bit. And, um, but we both, you know, I'm, I'm grateful then for the friendship we developed after that. It's like a miracle. I know it's, it's, you know, very important to me in my life and it's miracles. I just want to say something, you know, I don't remember that you actually failed this class because that might give people who are listening the wrong impression. I don't think you could actually fail a class that you actually went to. I think what happened was you were involved in other stuff and you didn't show up. That was the problem. And then the mm. professors probably had to give you failing grades, but I wouldn't want to accidentally say that like you tried something that you failed at because I don't think that's actually what happened. Well, I remember I stopped showing up to your class, for instance, and then I didn't even go to the <laughs> final. And because your class was hard, man. You you What was you, he teaching? Well, what was the class? It was a very mathematical, like theoretical computer science, and it was hard. Maybe it was boring. I don't know, maybe. <laughs> and what were you doing when you were not at class, James? I was uh I was devel- starting to begin writing. This is, I began my writing three thousand words a day, and I was at that moment um obsessed with playing the Asian game Go. Oh, and so those two things basically kept me from going to class. I love it. <laughs> so, That's true. And well, so without being thrown out of graduate school, I probably wouldn't have written books, for instance, unless they were computer science books. So I'm great I'm great I'm grateful to Merrick for you throwing me out. So I wrote books other than computer science books. Okay. And I'm grateful for the books you wrote because there some of them are good enough that I keep buying them and giving them to the people because I think they're terrific. I'm grateful for that. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. Okay, this is a gratitude fest. You can get into an infinite <laughs> loop. It's very uh, yeah, it's dangerous. So, so AJ, when you were... And, and AJ, that's what you're doing, right? You're sort of tra- tra- um, tracking down like a chain of gratitude I gathered. Yes. Yeah, really exactly. And it can be, da- you know, it reminds me of computer science because it's a tree that just branches and branches and branches. Like every stop on the grad, like, you know, with the cup, you can thank the lumberjack and that'll lead to like a hundred other people because he has the, um, he, you know, he's got the chainsaw and then you need metal for the chainsaw and you need a helmet for the people who are mining the ore for the chainsaw. So, yeah, it's dangerous. It's crazy, right? So it's, it's, and I was, I was reading the beginning of something that you wrote where you were going to the coffee shop and you started there and I was thinking, well, what about the elevator? What about the country? <laughs> what about the shoes you're wearing? It's like, exactly. It's this, weird, it's this weird sense that you have that the only way that our lives are at all possible or easy is that there were a zillion people that came before us that left something here that made our lives a little bit easy. And I'm sort of in a stage of my life where I think about that the other way, which is how hard it is to figure out how to leave something. Mm. So that people that come later, because we're only here a short time, how people come later, it's easier for them. And yeah, so it's very do, cool what you're doing. Do you think? You. Do you think that's? Do you think that's possible? Because like, think about the most famous people of the 1950s. I'm just picking it as an example. This is 70 years, two generations ago, 70 years ago. My kids have no idea, for instance, who Chuck Berry is, and he was maybe the most famous musician of I don't know 1953. Well, first of all, it's really it's really sad that they don't know that. You should fix that right away. <laughs> but like most, I would I would bet and, none of their but yeah, friends. But ideas, that, no, it's really interesting. So like ideas, they're they're kind of ephemeral. So you make changes and it affects people's lives. I mean, I, I think it affects. I mean, you 
James, I mean, you've affected an enormous number of people's lives. And, and you told me just now, I might have affected yours. So I think that, that laugh that they may not remember where it came from. But even something as simple as you just make something, you know, sitting on a bench or sitting on a, depending on your shoes, like somebody actually made that that went into the future. Uh, Alan Kay said something recently that just struck me. He said, what are we, what are our emissaries to the future? And what kind of emissaries to the future are products? But it's actually kids that are the emissary for the future or people that we teach. They're the emissaries into the future. So maybe that's the answer. Maybe the answer is most you can do is show somebody else how to be in the future when you're not here. Well, I'm actually, uh, I'm friends with this guy, Will McCaskill, who's an Oxford philosophy professor, and I love him. But his new obsession is is thinking about not just like our grandkids, but like our 70th grandkids. Because for the first time in human history, you know, when we were cave people, you couldn't really affect the future. But now our actions can affect the future for a long time. So we've actually got to start thinking more long term, like not just tomorrow. Not so just like, like what? So like what? So that's interesting. I mean, I know there's a long now foundation too. It's sort of been trying to think on these terms, but but really, what could you do that affects the future that far out? I have trouble affecting the future like next week. I think. <laughs> well, it's adjusting your priorities. So you're looking at the existential threats to humanity as opposed to like the uh, the the little problems of today. So you know, looking at uh, pandemics, at um, at climate change. Uh, and you know, trying to encourage your politicians to focus on that because no one's talk. You know, we don't talk about the big a nuclear war that hasn't gone away. You but, know, but I would say, like to to Merrick's point about the next generation versus dealing with something so global as like a pandemic. You're not a pandemic kind of scientist. You're probably not going to do anything that will help. Maybe I should be though. That's but a- but if you could raise two or three good human adults, that's a very difficult assignment that evolution has given you. And and that's how you affect 70 oh, grandchildren. Because then they'll, well, they'll have a little more likely to raise that. good kids. And just to, that, you know, it doesn't even have to be so grandiose. In every conversation you have with a human being, they go off from the conversation as an embassy. Right. And, and, get, and get, raising your kids to be mindful of the future humans so that maybe I can't solve and the Chuck, pandemic, and, but and maybe. Chuck Berry, don't forget. And Chuck Berry, you have to be mindful of Chuck Berry. Yes, <laughs> I gotta, we got to add Chuck Berry to every conversation now from now on. And Chuck right. Barris, the, uh, isn't he the gong show guy? Chuck, uh, Chuck Barry. Oh Chuck, yeah. 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 yeah everyone's going to forget him in a generation. I've and, already forgotten his and name. And he was the most famous see. person in the 1970s. <laughs> so, so, AJ, can I ask So, if you look back and say before you wrote this book, are you grateful to somebody for having given you this? Idea? Where did the idea for the book come from? I love it. I love the idea. Oh well, thanks. Just yeah, my mind spins I'm, out of control thinking about it. I will say, you know what James is doing now, I love, and I actually did a similar thing. I called this guy. He never fired me, uh, but he was one of my first editors at a tiny newspaper in California, and I was, uh, you know, I called him out of the blue and said, I just want to thank you, and it was awkward because. You know, I think as a man, it's a little awkward to be uh, emotionally avail- available and vulnerable. Mm-hmm. But I got, I found it very meaningful, and I think he liked it. He wasn't too freaked out. I think he liked it. So, um, yeah, I, I want to thank him. And you know what? I also love what James says about 
how something that seems terrible at the time can actually turn out to be good. So like, you know, my my friend who was my first editor, I was friends with him before I wrote a book and I was like, oh, I really want to write a book. And I came up with all these ideas and they were all crappy and they were all like, you know, I wanted to write a book about redheads. And he's like, you're not a redhead. That's not, it's a terrible idea. And it was. Uh, so I'm thankful for him for rejecting all the crappy ideas until I finally found one that we both agreed was actually, yeah. was a good idea. That's interesting. Good, because he's safe. He's being rejected <laughs> by everybody else that you might have cared about more. I don't know. Yeah. So I feel, I feel a little bit sad that you, you called me to say this and maybe there are other people you wanted to call and... No, no, Merrick, Mar- Mar- you're... Like I've muscled into a conversation here, but I love this conversation. No, Merrick, you were literally the main person. You were the first person I called when I thought of doing this in the podcast. I'm so glad uh, you were able to do it. And, and I really mean it. Like, I really am grateful that you in particular were the one who wrote the letter throwing me out. I'm grateful I got thrown out of graduate school and that you were the 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 person who wrote the letter because I think the many benefits have have come out of both. Is there still a copy of that letter? I don't know. Would you do you keep that's your a, that's email? a scary thought. <laughs> I would love to read it. Oh my god, I want to frame that. Some, I mean, it's funny that you said that. It just here's an embarrassing thought. As you said that, my first thought was, gosh, you know, I have all these laptops. There's closet somewhere. Maybe I was gone. There was no there was no chance that there was a laptop back then. So maybe there was. No, it was in 1991. There wasn't really laptops. It was like a VAC 780 or something that took a whole room. So I don't know. Maybe you know, there's hardly anything ever disappears from the net. Well, are you? But, can you still log into your CMU email accounts? No, no. They finally, they finally took that away. <laughs> remarkably enough. <laughs> yeah, because I was able to log into mine for like 10 years after I was thrown out, but I would use that for all sorts of purposes. <laughs> Uh, that, that, that I'm not sure I want to know about. Well, you, you know what was interesting? Yeah, no, no longer connected. You know what was interesting is that most people, this was like, this is, a, this is just a tangent. This is in, 1990, in 1990, say, your mailbox on Unix wasn't really read protected. Not yours specifically, but like most people didn't, ha- didn't protect their, their mailbox. So you could actually read everybody's email back then. That's great. And so, now you can yeah, again. Um, Well, Merrick, thank you so much for participating in this. I'm so glad uh, uh, I was able to talk to you, and I'll see you Thanksgiving weekend. That's great. And in my way, it's hard to accept that. I hadn't realized that until just this, as much just this second. But I have this weird feeling like I don't want to say you're welcome for sending you up. Wait, 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 what did you say? Uh, well, I'm just trying to figure this out. So it's, it's a little hard to accept gratitude. Mm. I think AJ just said a moment ago when you were saying you felt a little uncomfortable about expressing it. Now I'm feeling like that. I'm just noticing it's a little hard to hear. And then I was just thinking, well, I wanted to say thank you. But I want to say you're welcome or something. But I. But yeah, how so do you accept gratitude? You're welcome. Yeah, that's you're interesting. Welcome, you're welcome for getting kicked out of graduate school. I don't know if that's right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because I think in general. Sound right, but. In general, it's hard to receive any, like people have a hard time taking compliments, for instance. Yeah, yeah, it's true. And you get, it's a little awkward. I mean, to me- What should his response be? I guess the idea is like, uh, there's some study on paying it forward, you know, just like 
go and thank some, have an awkward conversation with someone else. Uh, so that thank someone <laughs> oh, who uh, who fired you, and uh, and then you will feel good, and that person will have to do it to someone else. Yeah, there you go. Um, okay. Well, I, I didn't think I needed help having awkward conversations, but I can go have one now. And <laughs> anyway, thanks, thanks for including me in this. And AJ, it's really nice to meet you. I hope uh, it'll be more than just like by the by phone sometime. Absolutely. Thank, Thank you. Thanks, very. I'll talk to you soon. Okay, James. Bye. Happy, happy Thanksgiving, everyone. Bye. What do you think? How did it go? How Good. do you feel? Good. Yeah. No, I... I, I you know, Merrick knows I've been grateful for him to for throwing me out of graduate school, and particularly the the friendship we developed afterwards. But uh, uh, you know, I think it is an interesting exercise for people to think of not just today who I can be thankful for, but kind of dig into the archaeological layers of your past. Those layers are what are the foundation that built who you are now on. Right and you know if that foundation didn't exist, you wouldn't be here. So you know it's like thanking your mother and father for existing. But there's more. That's kind of an evolutionary thing. But there's more nuances, like the professor who threw you out of graduate school, the guy who fired you, the girlfriend who broke up with you. Uh, yeah, you know, I love that things. angle. Like, because it also is a must be empowering. Like to take something that was so negative in your life and be like, you know what, that was the best thing that happened to me. Yeah. Yeah. So so now before we the call, you were talking about ways of interacting with other people. What about things you've learned since starting to write the book about just how to build gratitude in, inside yourself in general? That could be a takeaway from this that I can learn from. Well, one is that just take, since we do have this negative bias, we're so good at noticing what goes wrong. Take two minutes a day and just try to make a list of all the things that go right. So it could be, you know, you press the elevator button and the elevator comes and then you get in and the elevator doesn't fall to the basement and break your collarbone. Right, let me and, ask you about that because you mentioned that in the book and I thought you, you, be, you basically give a list of things that don't happen bad. Yeah. And that seems negative. Well. You, you actually didn't say in the book like, oh, okay, I, did, I, I got here, I got to the subway in perfect health, you said, I didn't fall down the steps. <laughs> well, that is my Larry David side coming out. I would say, yeah, there are two ways to do it. One is the it could be worse, which I think is a very powerful way to look at life. Uh, so yeah, it could be worse. You know, you, I, I could have forgotten how to, my, I could uh, do what I'm doing right now. Where I I'm stuttering. It reminds me, my first radio interview, I was kicked off of the air because I started stuttering so badly that they were like, we got to end this. He's like, thank you, AJ Jacobs. So I want to thank that person because it made me commit to really being much better at speaking. And I took every opportunity to go speak. Uh, that was a little tangent. But I would say uh, you can either focus on how all the terrible things that did not happen, which I think is actually a powerful way to look at the world. Um, or yes, you could try to focus on the positive things. Like, And I talk about that with savoring is a very important yeah. idea. Uh, savoring uh, is interesting. So that's very much in the present. Like if you have a cup of coffee, rather than just drinking it down while you're thinking of all these other things, you can, you, you specifically mentioned how you savored the taste, you kept 
the, the liquid in your mouth for 20 seconds and enjoy it. Not even. I don't have 20 seconds. I'm not uh, that patient. You know, all you need is two seconds just to focus on the taste and the, uh, the, the texture and the, and the sweetness. And it, I, I often now try to think of my life as um, a, a series of moments and that I'm sort of a collector. I'm like collecting a bunch of good moments in the museum of my life. Because otherwise, if you don't focus and, and pick out those moments, then it all just goes by in a blur. So I really do try to have in my mind a list of, uh, of good things that happened. So let, let, me, let me throw an example at you. Uh, let's say um, you had a... You had a uh, an acquaintance, a good acquaintance, let's say it's a work friend or whatever at Esquire, or I'm just making this up, or the publishing company, or and they threw a huge party for Christmas and they didn't invite you. And normally, and let's say that uh, you and I both are not big party goers. I know we've, we've, we've gone to parties, spent <laughs> like all of 15 seconds and then escaped them without saying goodbye to anyone. You, you, you taught me that technique a year or so ago. Uh, and, uh, uh, but let's say you weren't invited to the party and you're feeling like, why didn't you get annoyed? Why didn't he invite me? Does he not like me? How would you now deal with that differently than before you wrote this book? Well, I would say, I mean, first of all, like you said, I, I often, instead of have FOMO, I have by fear of being included. But pretending, pretending yeah. like I really wanted to go to this party. I think the, uh, the important thing is uh, instead of stewing, which I'm very good at, I would take action. I think you would, you know, throw your own party, uh, invite a couple of people over, or do something new. Like I've been wanting to go to the um, uh, this like uh, underwater virtual reality exhibit by National Geographic. So yeah, don't. Uh, it, you, it's much better to replace something than to try to uh, get over it. You and, know? and and you and this you figured out after you started writing this book. Yeah. That's, a, that's an interesting thing. So replace instead of FOMO. Exactly. So, um, all right, what's another, what's another thing internally? Mm. I like to say it out loud. I'm going to throw say that on the list. Say it out loud. Well, this one is, um, this is an internal thing, though, that definitely did change my life, and I can't take credit for it. It was a woman, when I was giving a speech, she taught me the trick. Uh, she was in the audience. When you're trying to fall asleep, uh, go through the alphabet. And instead of counting sheep, count things that you're grateful for alphabetically. So, you know, start. I sometimes I start with A, sometimes another letter. Wait, but, so this is when you're trying to go to sleep? Yeah, when you're lying there. And instead of obsessing about what went wrong that day or what's going what's gonna to happen tomorrow, focus, go through the alphabet. You know, like yesterday... Uh, I made app my we don't have a kitchen right now because we're remodeling so we made an apple pie with my kids uh, an oven free apple pie just with a blender and uh, so I that'll be one of like a is for the apple pie the oven free apple pie and then B could be any you know that you baked the apple pie yeah exactly <laughs> that's a little cheap C, but you could do it you put frosting on the apple pie so it became a cake. <laughs> 
<laughs> T, you digested the apple pie. You are good after at this. eating it. E, yeah. And then you went on an F fast to lose weight that you gained from the apple pie. Uh, I do try to mix it up more, um, but that I, it's a good strategy. So but that's 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 a unique one. And does it help you fall asleep? Oh my god! Like I rarely make it to the. I honestly, I don't want to say I never have because that sounds like. Because it's kind of crazy that it works that well, but I, I don't think I've ever made it to Z. So all of these things, ha- like you, you, again, you listed th- some things where you interact with people, and you list some things that were on your own. Um, oh see. well, you know what? This one is interacting with people in that category. But to promote this book, I decided it'd be interesting to write a thousand thank you notes. To my to readers of any of my books or articles, and actually, I, I thought this I was think, kind of James Altucherus. I think I think that's I think you did actually write something to me. But I can't remember. I feel like you wrote something to me. Huh? Look, I, this is a it's listed as poten- it's listed as potential spam. But I just want to see. Sure. It says the consulate general of some office. Let me just see what it is. Oh yeah, no, you got to get that. Hello? Oh no, they hung up. That could have been an ambassadorship. I know. They were I offering maybe you. I was being offered a job. Damn. Uh, but I have, I mean, I, I have on my website, ajjacobs.com slash thanks, and there's a little form you can put in your name and your snail mail address, and then a message you want me to write, like anything. It could be like, you know, you love the Seattle Seahawks or, or the Jolly Green Giant, uh, you know, maybe a, a no judgment, that's fine. And then I'll write a personalized note, and I have... It's simultaneously one of the biggest pains in my ass ever and one of the greatest things ever because I have gotten, uh, I've, I've loved the feedback. I've learned what people like, so it's actually good for a writer. And um, What do people like? Well, just, you know, my wife, Julie. <laughs> they, they love Julie. Thank God you're so patient with exactly. AJ. So... Uh, uh, let me ask you a question then on that. Is it better? Do you feel better, or is there any science in this? Is it better to write a handwritten note, or is it better to rather than an email, or does it not matter? Uh, I don't know if there's. I don't know of any research officially, but I mean, analog in this case is huge. Uh, I, I think I, certainly when I get a note, a paper note, that makes it much more meaningful and. It's but actually, I get, you get it's like what Merrick was saying. How do you accept that? Like, I get stress. I get handwritten notes, and sometimes I get nice notes and other things. And uh, uh, I get stressed because I don't know how to. I can't write handwritten notes. I like lost the ability to handwrite, <laughs> other than on my notepad, which is unreadable. So, can you outsource it? Can you hire someone to write a notepad? Then that seems like yeah, that's not loses the point. Well, I am not expecting anything back. I guess that you've got to change your mindset. So I mean, like, instead of being stressed, focus on how nice it is that you got this. And I will say, um, but then I'm people, people have, will think I'm not being respectful to them if I don't respond. Well, you know what you can do is I've had a lot of these people who received the notes, they tweet it uh, and they say, uh, that's a great idea. And it was awesome. Cause like, yeah. I loved that they got it. I mean, it, weirdly, it helps me from a selfish point of view because, like, then you know, my name is on their Twitter feed. So maybe that's the secret. You don't have to respond; just tweet them, uh, uh, take a picture of it, and tweet it, and say thanks. What's um? Oh, there's one thing I wanted to ask you about. Uh, I mean, 
there's a lot of things, but you mentioned um, uh, how Barbara Ehrenreich writes about what she calls the gratitude trap. Like Walmart teaches their employees to be grateful, but that's somehow a weird trap so that the employees then feel like, uh, you know, it, it, it sort of prevents the employees from complaining back to Walmart, like, oh, we should have more yeah. uh, money. They, Walmart doesn't say what you should be grateful about. So the employees just become in general, oh, grateful we have a job, grateful we're for our salaries. So they, so there's less complaints back to Walmart from employees. And Barbara Ehrenreich says this is kind of this, this bad gratitude trap that corporations or the oligarchs do on the totally. working class. Now, then you called Scott Barry Kaufman, who's a mutual friend of ours. I've been on his podcast. Um, weren't we going to one time take a oh, Barnes yeah. family bus down to exactly. UPenn and speak at his I would still do. Oh, he doesn't work there anymore. Now he works at Barnard. It's much easier to go to. Oh, I didn't even know that. Yeah, he lives yeah, here. You have to visit him. Uh, but, um, but, but, but Scott Barry Kaufman disagreed with that, but I don't... And then you kind of went along with his... In the book, you went along with his thing, but I sort of think they were both... He didn't really answer her question. He said to you, and, and you mentioned this in the book, he said to you, uh, no, feeling grateful makes you pro-social, more generous, and so on. But that doesn't necessarily contradict what she said. They could feel be feeling pro-social towards Walmart and not complain <laughs> about their salary. So he didn't really re respond to well, her that's criticism. Well, I would say I, I still agree with him, uh, and I think the research backs it up empirically. Uh, people, when they are grateful, are more likely to help others. Uh, so it could be that when you're grateful at Walmart, you know, you want to, whatever, you want to unionize, you want to um, help uh, help your colleagues have more more power. Uh, so uh, yeah, the, the idea that I was very afraid of this, that gratitude would lead to complacency and that you would just be like, oh, my life is crappy, but I'm so grateful for it. But it's really, the empirically, that's not the way it works. It's that when you are grateful, you go out, you become more aware of others and try to help them and make, make and I saw this like with water. Since coffee is 98.8% water, I'm like, I gotta thank the people who give us water, which is, um, there are hundreds of people who work in the in the New York reservoir system, and they're not all glamorous jobs. I mean, there are people who have to literally pick up deer poop around the reservoir so it doesn't wash into and 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 poopify our water. So uh, I think that's a verb. But I uh, so which I, by the way wouldn't matter for coffee because it's heated, so it burn away. No, our water's not heated. Oh, for coffee. for coffee, yes, yeah. yes, 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 you're right. Good point. That's um, why you can drink coffee in places like India where normally you wouldn't drink mm, the water. Right. So. Uh, well, but that brings up, you know, when once I started to be aware of the, the fact how much goes into our water, it made me realize, you know, this is very unusual. 99% of humans throughout history did not have access to clean water. There are still billions of people in, a, in the world who do not have access to clean water. And I got it. I asked uh, my, my philosophy professor friend who's great with, uh, with altruism, like, what's a great organization to help with water? And he recommended this one called... Um, uh, contain, uh, containers for clean water. So I, I recommended that and I gave some money to that. Um, and I would say, uh, yeah, the whole idea of 
gratitude. It doesn't. It doesn't make you into this dull sheep. It it inspires but, you. But let's. I mean, where where Barbara Ehrenreich is getting her let's call it insight from is kind of the history of, you know, for the past several thousand years, emperors, kings, whatever have used, you know, as Karl Marx would say, religion is the opiate of the masses, and you know, people feel serfs and whoever uh feel grateful for their their god or gods or whatever for over centuries and thousands of years um and that's what keeps them uh happy doing their surfing work instead of <laughs> instead of being a king they don't uprise i don't know if that's i mean empirically i'm not sure that's that's true like you know i don't think your average surf was grateful i think they were depressed and the more depressed you are the less likely you are to have a revolution. So um, yeah, to me, and and from the studies I read, like it is actually, you know, it's, you want to be grateful uh, to affect change. Uh, and- so, uh, so, so this is to your quote earlier, uh, happiness doesn't bring about gratitude, gratitude brings about happiness. Right. Change doesn't bring about gratitude. Like your life's not gonna change and then suddenly you're gonna be grateful for it gratitude will bring about positive change in your life. I, I love that. We, we've I just that. made our own new quote for, the, for, for history. All right, printing up the t-shirts now. Love it. Um, I wanted to ask you again about, we've talked about this on other podcasts, but there's the AJ formula for writing a book, <laughs> which has come up with this high stakes macro idea. Like in the year of living biblically, it's what would it be like uh, to live now um, by the word, literally by the word of the Bible. In Drop Dead Healthy, you spent a year just doing everything you could to be healthy. In uh, My Life as an Experiment, uh, you have all these experiments that you do, including outsourcing your, your arguments with your wife to an outsourcing firm in India. And um, it's Very all relative. Grateful. Rather than just talking about how we're all related, you went and found all you know, you held the largest family reunion in history, and featuring had, cousin James Altucher. Yes, I spoke at it. It was great. Loved it. And uh, uh, I remember signing in right next to Doctor Oz. <laughs> my kids were like, "That's Doctor Oz," and now he's been since been on my podcast. But you had the largest family reunion in history. You went out. You. It seems like you you come up with these high stakes thing, and then any. I feel like any other boring writer would just sort of write about. Well, this would be like to live biblically, but you put yourself into this high stakes concept and live it. And that's this, and so that's how you generate story. And then you intermix with the story, you go into the theories uh, and the history and like, like, you know, the science behind gratitude and the questions that come up and the, the you know, and then, but inter interwoven is your personal journey through this. And and I think it's just an excellent way to write a book. Like, let's let's th what's a high stakes thing that you haven't done? I mean, you've dealt with religion, um, saying thanks, obviously, uh, uh, genealogy, which millions of people around the world love, uh, health. Uh, well, that's very first of all very nice of you, and I love it. I mean, it's and a it's fun funny way. too because it's to put yourself in these weird like when you like in the year of living biblically you have to stone somebody who's an adulterer. That scene, I won't describe it, is funny. And then, <laughs> and then in Thanks a Thousand, um, this book that just came out, you, you calling the woman who 
does the pesticides in the warehouse. That was a funny scene. Like no, every you're, you. you're you're a modern day Mark Twain. You make all these uh, stories that involve you funny, which again wouldn't happen if you were just being if you were writing a philosophical book about gratitude. Right. Well, I feel yeah, I like to live it, and I think it gives me something to write about. And as to your question, what else is? I mean, I. I love getting suggestions from readers, and so uh, some of them are at work and some don't. I mean, one very common one, uh, I don't know if I've mentioned this on the show before, but people say you should try to be the greatest lover in the world and do all the positions in the Kama Sutra. And I actually brought this up with my wife, Julie, and she's like, no way. That is like, no, uh, that's <laughs> exhausting. Plus, we don't have the flexibility. I think we're too old. Like, you gotta, uh, It's tantric yoga. You got to be able to do yoga. Yeah, so. I know. She does yoga, but I don't think I have. So, so that one will never happen. But I do like getting suggestions because uh, it lets me know what people are interested in. You know, it was it, because a lot of it is also about getting out of your comfort zone. Mm. And we, when, when, um, when it's all relative came out, remember we did a kind of fake, I wanted to do this and you played along. You were very nice. Uh, we did like a fake talk show on a subway about your book. I loved and it. We, it we did the awkward. exact format of a talk show, uh, but did it on a subway and then walked up to people who were quote unquote <laughs> in the audience, but they were really just sitting on the subway and asked them about if they were related, how, how much, how far away they thought they were related to us. And it was a lot of interesting cognitive biases uh, occurred. So it, it was it was <laughs> it interesting. Was, it was super awkward, but maybe, I did. I liked it. I liked it. But maybe, maybe that's one you can do is, um, you know, the comfort zone, and you and somehow every day you do one thing to get yourself out of your comfort zone. Mm, that's nice. So, but then you'd have to. It's not. It's not. You know what? It's not as clean as this though. This is clean because it's like a cup of coffee. All the people you have to thank who got you this cup of coffee, right? And, but you're living biblically, just follow the Bible. Dropped it healthy, just everything you do, do healthy. The one I just said is complicated. You have to think of a new thing every day. That's like hard work. Well, simplicity really is. I love that. I mean, to me, that's one of the keys to a book. It's just if it's a simple idea, but you go deep on it and explore it from every angle. But but the idea that you can sum it up in a sentence, to me, that I love that. You know, there, there's a, a genre of... of um, People and you, you probably know all these people, and some of them have been on the podcast. But there's this genre of reporters who study an obscure uh, game or athletic subculture and then become champions in that yeah. subculture. So like, and I love those. So like Josh Bauer, who became um, like a Scrabble champion, right? Mem he, I think he was memory. Oh, he was memory. Guy what did a Scrabble? Yeah, so he was a U.S. memory champion after just. Being a journalist about it, then he got obsessed with it. Yeah, I love the other that. guy, uh, Stephen Fassis, yeah, that's it. Did Word Freak about Scrabble and became like a Scrabble champ. Great book. Uh, Andy um, Bellman. I oh, Andy Bellin. Yeah, Bellin. Yeah, a he friend did of poker. mine. He did. Uh, yeah, he became great at poker. Another good book. Yeah. So so, and then there's a guy who was keeping a blog about putting in the ten thousand hours on golf, but he recently. Gave up. He had like he had like an injury after like six thousand. Oh, that's hard. So, but he got pretty good. But um, uh, that could be another thing where you're gonna be you're gonna decide to be like a violinist and you're gonna put in the ten thousand hours. But then you had to take, then it's gonna take you years and years to write that because you got to put in the ten thousand hours. Right. Well, remember, I actually at one point and you were involved in this. I was gonna write about it was sort of Shark Tank the book. I was yeah. gonna be an investor and I I would take my 
uh, my uh, advance and invest in like 10 different companies. But uh, the problem was that you can't really see whether a company does well for like six or seven years. And uh, I was like, I, I can't wait that. I got to write a book before six or seven years. All right, I'll, I'll, I'll give you an idea, but it's outside of the normal AJ formula. I will make you a millionaire in one year if you follow my advice exactly. <laughs> okay, done. So that that's if, if you wanted to do that, I would do that with you. Um, you you could be the writer. I won't write anything. But uh, but that that's not quite your style because it's then you just depending on me to kind of help with the content. You you kind of create your your content and you have multiple people right uh, who are in your. Cohort. I would need a bunch of. But that would be. I mean, first of all, if I did make a million dollars, like imagine, like that's the best advertisement for James Altucher. And if I didn't. Like think of the conflict. I'd be so angry. I could write like this crazy book about the the our friendship, and then we could like you. We could bond together over it, and uh, right, I could like, like I did you. with Barrett right here. Yeah. Right here. Um, what's awesome. another? What's another high stakes thing? Anybody in the What's a high stakes thing? Because um, I feel like. I, it always seems like you've covered every high stakes thing, and then you come up with the next high stakes thing. Well, I want you know D- dating the- is a high stakes thing, but you're in. Uh, and and you've talked about your marriage, you've written about it, and you, and you're in a marriage, so you're not going to do dating. So what's what's another high stakes? Well, it's interesting because in the Bible, in the Old Testament at least, it says that you can have multiple wives. So I uh, I I brought that up to Julie when I was writing uh, about the Bible, and uh, and she was not that into it. I actually interviewed the head of Next the time polyamory. On the James the, I mean, show. the polygamy, the Christian Polygamy Association, and I was like. You know, it's an interesting idea, but how do I actually make it happen? And he said, don't ask for permission. Like, you know, shoot first, ask permission later, or whatever that is. That He said, go out, get your second wife, marry her, and then come home with her and say, honey, I'd like you to meet my second wife. That and is then, such horrible advice. I'm glad you didn't take it, but... Uh, it, I certainly did not take it. your life. Yeah. Um, oh, there was one I was just... Well, some people have suggested, you know, trying to create world peace. Like, can I solve the Middle East conflict? But even if you could, what would be the story? Like, it's not like you're gonna. It's not like the prime minister of Israel and Egypt and all these places are gonna meet with you. Like, (laughs) you'd have a hard. You could come up with an idea, but you're gonna have a harder time writing your personal journey through it. Right. Right. So again, I'm thinking of a high stakes thing. Again, you've done health. You've done. You know. Again, I was thinking. Like Josh Foer became U.S. Memory Champion, but again, that takes that was a journey that he documented, but that could take years. Yeah. Well, I mean, the other thing I'm fascinated, and I don't, it's not ready yet, but with uh, CRISPR and DNA slicing and robot, like, what does it mean to be human? Like, can I become human 2.0? So I'd be part machine, I'd be android, I could get my DNA, so I could glow in the dark, and I could. So like, that's be a great one. Eight, Ten pro- feet tall. The problem is, it might be better to write that book ten years from now than now. Right. I'm so gonna you, put you that might, on the. Uh, you might do the all the work, list. and it's just out of date almost instantly, or you can't get enough material, or whatever. Right. Whereas, like this is just saying thank you to a thousand people. Not exactly. Just, but you you know ahead of time you can create this story. Yeah, this one is timeless. But you're right that that one needs to wait. I mean, because there are some there. There was an article about uh, I think it's in Scandinavia where people are getting implants in their hands 
so that they can like get through security at their job. You know, it's like an ID card, but it's in their hand, so they don't have to carry it around. So it's sort of starting where we're becoming androids, but uh, but, but we I got bet, a ways to go. I bet. I mean, biotech is in general increasing at such a fast speed that it'll almost seem old hat. Some of the things you do now, yep, just two years true. from now. Well, it'll be also interesting. I mean, people who are doing CRISPR at home, like yeah. can I be can I be Frankenstein? Can I create? A new form of life. I don't actually want to mess with that. that could and be. also, you don't necessarily want your style is not to necessarily be a journalist where you're just going to find all the people who are doing that. Right. Like that, you need to do it. No, I would need it, to it, like it, do a CRISPR in my bedroom. And by the way, also because we we talked a little bit about skill acquisition, like the like the memory guy or the poker guy. You don't. None of your stuff really requires skill acquisition. Mm. Like you had already all the skills before you wrote "Thanks a Thousand to Thank a Thousand People." Right. You had the skills to live biblically before you went and lived biblically. Uh, another one, um, the Know It All, where you read the Encyclopedia Britannica from A to Z. You had the skills to to read. Mm, yeah, before you I wrote did. That. You're so, right. So that's another criteria is that you need to kind of have already have the skills that's to do the thing. Although maybe I should go the other way. I mean, I love the quote from Kevin Kelly. Uh, you know the form, the one of the founders of Wired, that the, the skill that you're going to need in the future is uh, is the meta skill of learning how to learn. Because whatever you learn is going to be out of date. But if you learn how to learn, so maybe learning to be the greatest learner in the world would be interesting. Well, and a little bit. That's why I like doing this podcast is because what what I get out of this is not just all the great and amazing things you just said about gratitude, but each time we get a little further in studying the A.J. Jacobs style of writing, <laughs> uh, which is not such a bad thing to study because all your books become New York Times bestsellers and, and they're great books and they're funny and they're, uh, they're in all the bookstores. You, yours the, your, your books are the only books that consistently I will see in every single airport bookstore forever. <laughs> like all of your books are in that every airport bookstore. That is lovely to say. Well, thank you. I mean, you know what I could do is I should take a lesson from you and learn how to self-publish books. That would be interesting. I yeah, because then you could course. write smaller books. You don't have to fit the traditional format yeah. of a book. You could play with format a little bit. And um, But again, I'm trying to figure out what's a good high-stakes thing. Well, I love what you do with your bookmark. Like when you offered a refund to people who didn't like their, your books. I think about that all the time. By that the way, was actually an in, inspired me to write the Thousand Gratitude Notes. But sorry. By the way, you know who inspired that idea was Kevin Kelly. He wrote a post that no one's done that before, so I did it. No way. And so Kevin yeah. and I, Kevin's been on the podcast twice. Kevin and I wrote back and forth about it. He said he didn't know technically how one could do it to keep. So I just figured I'd just do it manually. A lot of times people think they need to build software or something that's right. just as easy to do manually. I so I just it. offered it manually and uh, and it was interesting. It was a good technique. And, so and you Kevin's a smart guy. And people didn't, did you get anyone who asked? Yeah, yeah, it was like a slightly less than 1%. Um, <laughs> like, but it paid off. Yeah, I'm like assuming. some people thought I was going to go broke doing it because they have to pay more than you make. Right. But... It, it totally paid off and it worked and it also got me media opportunities because I was doing that. Oh, I love that. So I also love when you printed your entire book on a t-shirt and wore it around. Yeah, that one worked. You know what I'm doing for my next book? Uh, I'm putting it on Amazon for sale for $1,000. <laughs> 
Just, so that's the only price you can only buy it for a thousand, right? And it, it relieves the pressure of trying to sell lots of copies. <laughs> like you know, there's a stress. Like you look at your Amazon rank all the time. My Amazon rank is going to be horrible because I'm selling this for a thousand dollars. So you only need to sell like fifty copies, and you'll be uh, you'll be well, hopefully we'll, more. We'll see. Or or you can say, look, I'm giving you a gift. I, I could give away fifty copies and look at my charity right off. It's I could show any I could show anybody. It's look, it's on Amazon for a thousand dollars. This is a real thousand dollar gift, fifty thousand dollar gift. It's hilarious. So, um, but what's uh, uh, just for one more minute? Is is there another high stakes thing? You know, investing. You know, trying to become a world class investor is one, but that's a little bit skill acquisition. Um, well, one thing I am very interested in right now, it's not a very um, funny word, but hopefully I could write a funny book about epistemology. The How do we know what we know? Because that to me is the most high stakes thing in our world right now, because we've got these different realities and both sides accusing each other of fake news. So how do you actually know what's truth? Who can we trust in this post-fact, post-truth world? Uh, and I think that it's actually super important. I agree. It's funny. I re, uh, yesterday I asked this on Twitter. I just simply asked the question: um, Can someone explain to me what fake news means? Mm. And I got three types of responses uh, because the world's polarized. Uh, I got four types of responses. To be fair, one said essentially whatever the Democrats think is fake news. Mm -hmm. The others said whatever the Republicans and Donald Trump think is fake news. And, and they said it in much more nasty ways, but that's what <laughs> they said. A, a third accused me of trying to be provoking and that I must be either alt-left or alt-right. Like I got accused of being both mm -hmm. and people were angry at me. And the fourth category, there was a few people who did try to balance it out. Like some people think this is fake news and some people think this is fake news. And uh, and then there was, a, I guess, a fifth category, which basically said everything is fake news. Mm. And I kind of belong to that category. Interesting. You think everything is fake well, news? Well, I've been on tons of news shows, and I've, you and I both have written for lots of newspapers. And there's nothing really. Most things are just either someone's personal story or not reality. Yeah. Well, I actually think about this a lot. I, I, I mean, I think there are... Uh, you know, like I do think the New York Times is very important and that they do try to report the truth. But I think that media, the problem is man, man bites dog is the major paradigm for a news story. That's what's interesting, man bites dog. But really we should be writing about, instead of man bites dog, 20,000 dogs um, uh, bit men, you know? And because it's not interesting, but then we would be able to say, oh, okay, now let's solve this problem. Let's yeah, figure out. Yeah, but negativity bias, you're 20 times more likely to read, a, a, open up a newspaper, buy a newspaper that has a negative headline. Well, that's the problem. The classic New York Post headline, headless body and topless bar. Right. I mean, that's the, it's a huge problem. It's like instead of one person was sucked out of the window on a Southwest flight, it should be like, can you believe 400 you know a million a million people landed safely in this metal tube like that's insane that should be the focus not that one person was sucked out so so if you were if someone's listening to this they've got a, a lot of great takeaways on gratitude and some on the aj writing style but if you were to come up with if someone said i want to be a writer and I like the way AJ writes. I like his style. 
what what are three suggestions you would give to someone who wants to you know switch careers or start a side thing where they mm. start writing they want to start building the skill of of writing and because of the way you write i feel you're you're a good model to focus on because you again high stakes plus you put yourself in the story and then you document it right boom that's a book all right let me come up with three i have two in my mind and i'll come up with a third while i'm talking uh i mean, one to me it's just the importance of the title titles are uh, unbelievably important in books and uh, it's funny because i'm friendly our mutual friend uh, tim ferris when he had before he had written a book uh, he called me and said, I'm a first-time writer. I'm writing a book called uh, Drug Dealing for Fun and Profit, uh, which was because he had some sort of nutraceutical company that he, you know, he was selling uh, uh, and, and he wanted to write about it. And, of course, that eventually the title was changed to Four-Hour Workweek. He changed it to that, and that to me was so brilliant because I would pick up four-hour work like who doesn't want to have a four-hour work week uh whereas drug dealing for fun and profit i'd be like i don't know should i ha i don't know if i want to be seen on a plane reading drug dealing for so, fun so, so the title almost should be uh somewhat aspirational aspirational and super clear like i think one of my most successful titles was the year of living biblically it's exactly what it says it was uh, you know, I spent a year living biblically. And maybe one of my least successful titles was um, The Guinea Pig Diaries, because it's like, is it about guinea pigs? What it meant, it was Wait, meant to I don't even know this one. Did yeah. that, is that a book? It was a book. It was an anthology of sort of okay. shorter like um, uh, experiments, but it was supposed to be a human guinea pig, but it didn't really work. So, so clear title. So I'll, I'll, I'll give some insight into this. My most successful book is Choose Yourself, and the way I picked the title was I had a list of like, let's say 10 titles and I made Facebook ads out of mm, each title. I love that. And then the ads didn't, you didn't go anywhere if you clicked on it, but I didn't care. I had small budgets, so only like 50 or 100 people saw each ad. But I would see which ads were clicked on the most and 80% clicked on or 90% clicked on Choose Yourself and then everybody, all the other titles were way down. That's so I knew statistically, yeah that that title would work better than all the other titles I was considering. I think that's a great so end. That, so and that's number was, one. What was just one rejected title for my own knowledge? Pick Yourself, ah. which Tucker Max suggested, and the Choose Yourself era, which was my original idea. Interesting, all right. Because Choose Yourself, again, that's very it's a little clear. bit more, it was like, it's like a call to action. Right. It's a little more aspirational. Love that. All right, number two would be just what you said. Like it. I think the most successful books uh, strike an um, an emotional chord. You've really um, got to connect on an emotional level, not just an intellectual level. And thank God for my wife, uh, because I think that's what people. When I describe, you know, I can describe the journey and what I've learned, but how it affects my personal life, my wife, my kids, my my job. That is what people latch on to, because we are. You know, our brains are wired so, to focus on anecdotes. So, so, so that's the combination of what we were talking about. Like, it's high stakes enough to affect not only you but all the people around you. And then part of the story is not just what you do, but how it's affecting all the people around you. And right. All, and and it makes it simple because because there's this high stakes filter. You're simply documenting it, 
And it's funny yeah, because it's such a weird thing, like living biblically or outsourcing your marital arguments to India or thanking a thousand people for a cup of coffee. It's kind of funny, just that filter and, and how it affects all the people around you. So, so high stakes plus documenting not only your reaction, but the reactions of the people around you. So, okay, right. number, number three. Number three is, and this one is, I feel a little conflicted about it because I am actually not an extremist. I think extremism is terrible and, uh, and it's the most dangerous thing is like political extremism right now. However, if you're writing a book, I like to take a concept and push it to the extreme and then live it and see what happens. So, uh, you know, take the concept of outsourcing. Well, if I push it to the extreme, it's like, well, what if I outsourced everything? So not just my work, but arguments with my wife and uh, reading bedtime stories to my kids. And so uh, push, take something, push it to the extreme. But then at the end, make clear extremism is bad and here are the good things to keep. Um, and here you can get rid of well, it. Well, and even in Thanks a Thousand, part of the story is you exploring what the what the extreme is right. like should you thank the parents of all the people you thanked you know like that becomes an important question in in the book that's part of the story itself is where is the line and this is where you are able to uh uh look at the research and talk to you know professors philosophers scientists friends uh, and and you know that becomes the story. It's that becomes part of the story is like how extreme do you go? How extreme do you go with living biblically? How extreme do you go in trying to be healthy? How extreme do you go in building? You know, you're you're, you're contacting everyone, the thousands of people on your family tree. Uh, how extreme do you go in like trying to memorize the the Encyclopedia Britannica from A to Z? So I think that's. Uh, that's really that's really interesting. I think that's the the AJ Jacobs <laughs> three step technique to there writing a best selling book. I love it. I'm gonna. I. I'll, uh, okay. I have an idea. I'll make you a millionaire. You can write about that, and I'm gonna try to write an AJ Jacobs <laughs> style book. And you'll coach me on that. I will love it. My and first I will thing is I gotta I gotta sure. figure out the high stakes thing. All right. And then I'm gonna do it. We're gonna figure it out. What about? But didn't weren't you? Didn't you podcast straight for like forty eight hours once? No, was no, I I was going to do it, and then enough people convinced me not to do it. But I, we, Cal, your friend and fellow editor at large uh, at Esquire, Cal Fussman, ah. uh, he and I agreed we're going to try to break the record, but without the necessity of hiring Guinness, just break the record. Oh, yeah, definitely do that. But yeah, that could be. Why not just a year again? Podcasting live for a year. I would listen. I would listen to podcasting. James. For, see, that's the extreme. Yeah, exactly. So Push I love it. that. <laughs> um, all right. Well, AJ, I am so grateful that you came on this podcast once again. I can have you on this podcast every week. I'm sure we would never run out of things to talk about. I would and yeah. I am extremely grateful. I won't say thank you uh, since that might come off as too robotic, but I am very grateful. I loved it and I love being on your show. Excellent. Thanks, AJ. Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. With Capella University's game-changing FlexPath learning format, you gain relevant skills you can apply to your career right away. Earn your degree from an accredited university and be confident in the quality of your education. 
Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Capella University is accredited by the Higher Learning Commission. Learn more at capella.edu slash accreditation.